Hello and welcome back to the other 99% podcast where we take a step back from the 1% gains that society has become obsessed with and instead talk about the other 99%. Throughout this series, we will discuss everything from nutrition to sleep, training methods, work-life balance, leadership and mental health. There we go. That's us intro into the episode. I might start having to pull funny faces at you because you're getting too good at this. Yeah, far too good. It's amazing learning to read, isn't it? <laughs> So like Abraham Lincoln or somebody like that said that the man who doesn't read has no advantage over the man who can't. Um, so there you go. Bit of profoundness to start the session off with. Yeah, that is, that is profound, isn't it? I don't want to make of that. I definitely I agree. Do you? You don't think you agree? No, but the, the man who can't read has no advantage over the man who doesn't. Yeah. Oh, no, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I get it. I get it now. I've said it out loud, yeah. Yeah, it, it was the other way. <laughs> makes sense, that, yeah. It does make sense. <laughs> it's been a while since you recorded an episode. How, how have you been? Yeah, not too bad, actually. Um, it has been a while. It's been over a week, hasn't it? Um, so quite a lot's happened. Um, I'm already tired after half-term finishing. Uh, anyone who's not a teacher will have no sympathy whatsoever. Um, but I don't care. I'm still tired. Um yeah, so it's been quite a busy, busy start back to work, um, but it's been good. Um, training's going quite well, I think. Um, I had the the end of the Sunny Webster's squat program that I was going through for a second time. Didn't get quite what I thought I was going to get. I was hoping for a nice 180, but fell just a couple of kilos short of that. Um, but that was okay. Um, yeah, so on a new training plan now, um, which is, you know, it's nice just to mix it up a little bit, I think. And that's the November. No, it's not. It's the 2nd of November. So it's the uh, start of the Polar Bear Swim Challenge yesterday. Uh, so the Facebook group's been going absolutely mental with people jumping in cold water all over the country. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, a nice sort of, I don't know, side project to be focusing on. It's good. So how many times a week are you doing your cold water swimming? A couple of times? Um, well, at the moment I'm at work, so I can only get there one, maybe twice, uh, or two days at the weekend. So it's once this week, and then I think I can get there five times in November. Um, so yeah, you know, enough basically. It's it's pretty chilly. Um, how about you? How's life? Yeah, it's been all right. Um, what's what's new? I'm picking up my new car tomorrow. Oh yes. I was convinced I was going to get rejected on finance, so I'm shocked, to be honest. Um, huh. Yeah, pick, picking up a new car tomorrow. Well, that's a win. What have you got? Uh, just a Lamborghini. Uh, the everyday, but, the round bit, cool. Yeah, yeah, I'm parking next to your Ferrari. No, mm. I got um, a Nissan Qashqai, you know, the family man that I am. Yeah, the, the sensible <laughs> family SUV. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, just just preparing for the future, you know, you never know when you might meet the one. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um how's your training going? Um yeah, it's not I just I've said this on the last couple, I think. It's just a bit like directionless. Um I have these kind of like vague goals that I kind of want, but not that fussed about. So my training just kind of like wavers back and forth between different stuff and um yeah, pretty directionless. But I'm I'm gonna start playing rugby again. I'm gonna go and join Didsbury Rugby Club. So if you've got any listeners from Didsbury Rugby Club, I'll see you at training next week. Um <laughs> I'm sure there's I'm sure they all listen to this podcast. So see you then. Oh. <laughs> so I, th- I think that will well yeah, probably won't give much say again. I was gonna say you're always welcome to to join in with George's volume training. Yeah, I might do that. Is- it's like German volume training, but just a, a little bit easier. Yeah, just like half of it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. I'm going to... Oh, I need to set myself some goals. The good thing about rugby is it'll make me do a bit of running again. Because um, I've just been lifting for like the last probably three or four months now and I haven't done any running. So that would be good to get back into a bit of bit of fitness. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's it's now very much... We're in that time of year where 
it's easy to pass up on sessions and like those outdoor runs and things with i mean the weather's been abysmal here um so wet so dark and i think a lot of people have probably missed like not done their exercise that they would normally do over the past couple of weeks because of that so i think like you're saying goal setting at this time of year um in that lead up to christmas is really really important yeah so have you i might just let you set some goals for me (laughs) i'll have a think yeah well, the, the one annoying thing is I don't, I'll be able to get to rugby training every week. So it'll be Tuesday, Thursday night, but I don't know how many games I'll actually get to play. Because obviously when we're away, we travel on Saturdays. So I won't be able to play our away games. And then we normally work half a day, at least on a Saturday. So I think if we're home and Dipsbury are home, then I'll be able to play. So it's, it's going to be like once every month or something, isn't it? Um, well, that's fine. We've got three weeks in a in a car, full body cast to recover. Yeah, yeah. You can roll out again. I might actually get through a season without an injury pair one every one a month. Oh, well, don't write it off. There's still time. You can get injured. Yeah, I'll probably get more injuries playing like that. If you try hard enough, you can. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I'll see, I'll see how the rugby goes. I'll, I'll give it a shot. Hopefully, about to hopefully be able to fit it in around work. Um, but we'll see how it goes. But I, I feel like I still need some goals alongside that. So, yeah, I'll let you do that for me. Well, that's number one, isn't it? Just make sure you're at training every Tuesday and Thursday. Yeah, I need something like performance related. Oh, performance related as well. Um, yeah. And obviously squats, squats are in the bad pick again, so... Yeah, we don't like squats anymore, do we? No, it hurts your hip and your knee, and it hurts my knee, so they're shit again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've literally had one bad squat session in the last four months, but yeah, shit exercise. Yeah, don't do it. Hated it. You've always said that, in fairness. Oh, I've always said that, yeah. One thing I am is consistent. <laughs> oh, outstanding. Yeah. Uh, we've actually had to do quite a bit of research for today's episode, haven't we? Yeah, we've done a, done a lot of reading on for t- today's episode. Um, it was what we spoke about in that previous podcast. The next book we were going to cover was Transcend by... Uh, is, is, is it Scott Barry Kaufman or Barry Scott Kaufman? I always get them the wrong way around. Just what? Scott Barry. Scott Barry, yeah. Yeah. And it was, um, it's a really interesting read, but it's quite a tough read, isn't it? It is a tough read. It's not something that you can sort of flick through and um, just take little bits away from. I actually found that every page was pretty stuffed with information, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, I listen to his podcast quite a lot and he really prides himself on being evidence-based and it's just packed full of um, summarising the research findings, basically. But what he did a really good job of is tying so many different areas of psychology into like one neat little package is um, just how I found it. Yeah, I think the analogies that he used are brilliant, but I think we'll, we'll sort of give an overview about the book. The idea of Transcend is that, well, from, from the two sections that we've done so far, because this is going to be a two-parter, um is that he's taken maslow's hierarchy um and he's he's sort of utilized those components um and almost improved them uh to try and develop beyond the top of that pyramid yeah i think that's a, that's a good summary yeah we, we've spoken about maslow's hierarchy before and i think one of the first things i took away from this was that if you Google Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you see this pyramid of ideas and he didn't put it in a pyramid. That's been done since his death. So yeah. um, I, I actually found that fascinating that he didn't view them in a sort of tiered system, um, more that they were kind of uh, more interactionist, I think. Yeah, and that, that was what he spoke about in that opening opening section, wasn't it? Everyone pictures that pyramid. But like, like you said, Maslow never drew it as a pyramid, never intended to represent it like that. And some of the analogies that he used were like the Russian doll was quite a good example. Um, and then obviously he had the, the sailboat analogy as well. But the Russian doll one stuck with me a bit more because he spoke about it's not like you get the base of the pyramid ticked off and then go up to the next level and up to the next level. You always need to come back to those bottom levels to help you with the ones higher up, but you, you can't neglect those. Yeah. Um, I actually made notes on the boat analogy just to make things difficult. <laughs> um, 
So, yeah, so you've got the idea of the Russian dolls where you've got those little dolls on the inside that you can never ignore um, because they're always inside and they're always important. And the boat analogy was that we have these fundamentals that are like the planks of wood that make the boat that keep us safe. Um, and that was his first chapter, wasn't it, about safety? Um, yeah. And he split that into sort of three subsections, including safety. So we had safety, connection and self-esteem. Uh, so yeah, so he, he, like you say, he was, he was really evidence-based, which was great. Um, it was really, really brilliant to read, but it does sort of, um, it makes it a bit of a slower read. But the four um, givens of existence, and I've never really considered existence. Again, that sounds like quite a profound statement, but this was one of the first things he put in safety. There are four things that... Um, will always be present for any existence with any human and that that's death um so yalom who he's referenced here the inherent tension between wanting to continue to exist and self-actualize and the inevitability of death that we all know we will die at some point um freedom so this was the the conflict within us about the sort of seemingly randomness of the whole universe um but also kind of bearing the burden of responsibility of having that sort of such freedom of choice um isolation so on the one hand wanting to be connected to others but on the other hand sort of never being fully able to do so and then meaninglessness i always get that word sort of muddled up um the tension between an indifferent universe that sort of seems to have no inherent means uh, a function uh, and yet wanting to find our own purpose so there was sort of four conflicts that we have within ourselves that um, can kind of stop us from reaching that idea of transcendence and sort of progressing to becoming our our full selves of reaching our full potential yeah yeah i don't know what i can add to that um, yeah it's just interesting isn't it like that that last point i've I've read a lot around that era as well. And when you look at um, like Man's Search for Meaning and all those kind of books, like the, the finding your, your purpose one is something that I think I struggled with a lot the last three, four years. Because um, when, when you really boil it down, like there is there is no meaning to life. It is whatever you make it. And like from reading around all of that area, that's kind of what I took home from that. So um, yeah, that's just like what I've, personally found quite hard the last three four years of my life probably out of all of those four categories yeah i think um the the freedom one um i find really interesting because i'm uh, a big uh reader and follower of jordan peterson's work and you know I, I wouldn't necessarily say that i agree with everything that that he says but um one thing i do agree with was when he spoke about the fact that we say we want choice but actually we don't um, so this idea of uh, an inherent freedom, we we struggle to make decisions when we have too many options. What we would rather yeah. have is like two or three options to choose yeah. from uh, <laughs> and have those. And that makes us happier. Um, so I think the the kind of freedom element, but also the isolation. Um, I actually find that quite difficult myself because I, I really like my own company, but I also like, you know, spending time with other people. So finding that balance in a world where we spend so much time at work that we feel we want to kind of get away and have our own space. But equally, if we do that, we've got no time left for, you know, the people that we care about. So yeah. it's that it's a very fine balancing act, I think. Yeah, this will be too much of a tangent, but it's really interesting if anyone, if anyone else finds it interesting. But Jordan Peterson's debated with, I can't remember the guy's name now, but it'll come back to me, but whether free will actually exists. Like, do we actually have free will? Is a really, really interesting topic. Um, What's the alternative? Say that again. What's the alternative? When, what is that guy's name? It will come back to me, but he, he basically thinks like you, you don't have free will, like all of the genes you inherit and the experiences in your life. Like when you're given a choice, all those things will predetermine what you're actually going to choose. If that makes sense. So like, whether you eat that cookie or don't eat that cookie, some people would argue you like you can't actually decide it's predetermined interesting i feel like that's sort of shirking responsibility in some ways yeah yeah that and that that is like the big downside of that argument 
But then when you think about the fundamentals of personality formation, like one of the main theories or two main theories are trait theory, where everything's genetically inherited, and the other is social learning theory, and then you've got interactions, which is a bit of both. So oh, I don't I don't think it's all predetermined. I reckon there's a bit I like to think there's free will. Yeah, so would I, but I've probably done a really bad job of explaining the argument. I'm, on our next episode, I'm going to go away and give a really good, nice, concise summary of his argument for not having free will. Um, but this this guy's literally got like hours and hours of podcasts just like arguing whether we have free will or not. I think that that sort of debate is actually summed up quite nicely what, what Yalan was talking about there. Um, with the idea that there are these inherent tensions and conflicts within us, there isn't necessarily a, a kind of concrete um, answer for a lot of these things. And I quite liked the term crystallizing moments that Kaufman used. Um, and he says, this is where you realize um, what you're on this earth to do and your ultimate purpose and passion. Mm. Um, and I quite like that um, as a, a sort of term that, you have almost like a light bulb moment to to put it differently um yeah. but before you can have that there's this idea of of safety um and that in order to transcend we all need to hit these basics um and although maslow didn't put it in the pyramid um he he sort of he did make it quite clear that if we don't have this bottom layer of safety we're not going to be able to kind of experiment with and experience our more creative self because we haven't got that grounding. And I can't, I can't remember, he, he, he phrased this as almost like needs or wants, didn't he? Yeah. And uh, the, the, I think he used different language, but the needs will always out, uh, what's the word, like take dominance in your thoughts and actions over your wants. So like if you need food or you need shelter, like your, your behaviours and actions and thoughts are going to be dominated by that. So then you're not going to be able to get higher up the, not higher up the pyramid. He would hate me for saying that. Pyramid. <laughs> yeah, being able to reach your full potential, um, you won't be able to do that if if you don't have those things in place first. Yeah, um, he used the idea of hunger as a, an example, and and yeah. Maslow did quite a bit of research in societies where there's a lot of poverty and a lot of hunger, and he found that. Um, in, in these areas, there were more destructive behaviours uh, witnessed, so more anger, irritability, um, all the way sort of to like a greater um, likelihood of using rewarding narcotics. So, you know, drug abuse, substance abuse, where we're getting that, that kind of huge dopamine um, hit by taking something, one of these illicit substances. Um, and actually, if you think about like the homeless population who used to live in Brighton, the homeless population also had a really like big role to play in, in the drug problem that that exists in that that city as well. Um, and having read that, that's the first thing that came to my mind. You know, oh my goodness, they're lacking, you know, the roof over the head, the job, the income, the food, like the the kind of human basics. And yes, they've turned to substance abuse as a, an alternative, as a way out. Yeah. Um, we we joked about it, didn't we? Not not the drugs bit. The next bit I'm going to talk about. Um, we we joked about this next part about safety um, and how safety in early years is so important to like overall human development in adulthood, and that we were going to be bloody brilliant parents when that time comes around, if it ever does. Um, so it's quite a bit on attachment theories and um, parenting, and I I don't know if it made me like super confident that one day I'm going to be a cracking parent or a, a little bit overwhelmed about how many different forms of attachment there really are and how easy it is to kind of end up in one of the the less desirable zones. Yeah, yeah. I get, and this is what I was talking about earlier. I really like how we intertwine these different areas of psychology into this one model. Um, because attachment for it's something I've read quite a lot about as well. And obviously it, it the early research was done around children, but obviously your attachment style is something that you deal with and it probably affects your relationship as an adult just as much as, as it does when you're younger. So again, a super interesting topic. Do you want to take us through the different types of attachment? Um, I didn't actually write down all our, our different types, but the my sort of main takeaway was that when we have um, 
these positive attachments in uh, our formative years, it forms and develops emotional security within ourselves. So we almost have a predisposition to approach adult relationships with the assumption that there will be a level of emotional security as well. Whereas if that is lacking in your formative years, you um, you never truly trust a relationship in adulthood because your model, your internal working model for that is that all relationships are bad, that they will fail at some point for some reason, um, for whatever that is. Um, that that was my my taking from it. Yeah, the, the bit I found quite interesting was he talked about there being no secure attachment type. Uh, yeah. But the stuff I'd read previously, it talked about um, either secure, avoidant or anxious attachments. But yeah, you, you, you're just different levels of either um, avoidant or insecure based on like being more secure or more insecure, um, avoidant versus not avoidant. And that was that kind of quadrant that he drew out. Yeah, and and it was the the kind of impact that that environment has on us can still be impacted. So what I did like was that if you had, um, you know, a negative avoidant sort of attachment, it didn't necessarily mean that you're totally doomed for life. Um, yeah. If you had positive attachments, it's not like you have um, kind of a leg up on everybody else in the world. And um, I thought this study was fascinating. This was by Nettle. And they asked some volunteers um, who lived in a very privileged neighbourhood to fill out a questionnaire about their sort of faith in humanity and if they thought the world was founded on goodness, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and they were asked to deliver the same questionnaire to people in a very deprived area. Um, now, after they were there for 45 minutes doing it. And after just 45 minutes, their answers almost exactly reflected the people that lived there in terms of like they had a reduced faith in humanity, um, they were more paranoid, uh, they said that they didn't trust people as much. So they actually changed their answers after just spending 45 minutes in, the, in a different area. So mm. I think sometimes, particularly on the media uh, or newspapers, we can kind of, there's an element of judgment around behaviours and attitudes when we look at different areas of society. But we would all behave exactly the same if we were brought up in those areas. And, you know, globally, that's exactly the same. Yeah, that is, that is fascinating. Like, yeah, the, the impact your environment has on you. I always go back to that example that James Smith talks about all the time about, um, I can't remember what the drug was. You know, in, I think it was the Vietnam War, and soldiers got addicted to... Heroin, wasn't it? Was it heroin? I think it was heroin. And then, they were really, really worried about coming back and continuing being addicted, but obviously their environment completely changed. And I'm sure some of them did end up addicted, but like the large majority of them stopped using it. Yeah. Um, but there were also like benefits to coming from these these poor backgrounds and these um, sort of, I suppose, on paper, less desirable environments. Um, and, and Ellis found that the intelligence benefits were greater increased in lower socioeconomic areas. Um, things like perception and reading emotional states, um, they were much better at doing that than um, people from higher socioeconomic backgrounds because uh, I suppose the assumption is that if you grow up in uh, a higher socioeconomic environment, there's less reading to be done because everybody is more on a similar wavelength. There's mm -hmm. less danger, there's less threat. Um, so we're much less aware of what's happening around us. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So in terms of this idea of transcendence, which is what this book is about, actually um, coming from a lower socioeconomic background might give you uh, a better insight into how to do that because you've got a better uh, sort of better grasp on human nature. Yeah. Um, I thought that was really good. So from the safety point of view, it was this idea that if we have um, what is commonly thought of as the bottom rung. If we have that safety, we have those planks of wood on the boat, we have the inner Russian doll, that's when we can start to, to progress and develop. It's like the roots in a tree almost. Lovely. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the, the, that's safety ticked off, isn't it? Yeah, nailed it. Um, yeah. And the second bit was connection. Um, and I managed to get the, it quite home quite hard for you, didn't it? Yeah. Why is that? Obviously, you've got no friends. 
<laughs> and now everyone listening knows that as well. Yeah, yeah. So, but he would like to be my friend. Please reach out. <laughs> <laughs> so he split this into two sub needs. Um, one was the need to belong and feel accepted in our environment. And the other was the need for intimacy, mutuality and for relatedness. Um, so that sort of was more, I think, in terms of like a romantic um, or intimate relationship, whereas the idea of belonging, I think, can sort of a friendship group or a team or something like that. Yeah, or even at work, like it just spreads across a lot, a far greater number of scenarios than in our life. Um, mm. And I think one of the best things about that is when we look at accents and how as humans, we are literally um, wired to be pack animals and to fit in with everybody else yeah. so if somebody in a different country with a different accent and bring them back a year later they sound different they've changed their accent in order to kind of assimilate with the environment that that they're in yeah and obviously not time another dig at you here but do you remember when you came back from australia oh, i sounded bloody brilliant <laughs> but that, that's finally gone luckily it went years ago <laughs> um yeah, do you know the the one thing that stuck with me from this chapter was when you spoke about um, having a small group of close friends, and that's worth more than a Ferrari. Yeah, that that was the one thing that stuck with me throughout throughout the um throughout that chapter. And, that, and and then I'll, I'll let you have a rant about social media in a second. But he said that was one of the big um, big downsides of social media now. It's all about like the number of friends you can get or the number of likes you can get. And that's not what we should be focused on. You, you want to focus on having a really small group of close friends um, and you, you'll feel a lot more connected that way. Yeah, so there's two things I don't like in this world. It's social media and squats. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm about um, to retitle this podcast. <laughs> we hate squats. Yeah. And um, social media. And social media, of course. The... Um, the study that I or the research I enjoyed out of this one was looking at shared intimacy um, and this idea that actually we are so wired. And of course, we're talking about. Um, I actually don't know the phrase. I, I don't want to use the term normal, but. Um, I'll, I'll put it in inverted commas, normal brain and function, so non. Uh, pathological i suppose you know there are outliers um in terms of this um but those we are sort of ingrained to have this need for intimacy we we want to to have that that person and we want to you know we're biologically wired to want to reproduce etc um but this idea that the relationship actually um can stimulate areas of our brain without anything needing to be done so just the presence of that person to you um can increase uh like certain brain function um and they call it neural coupling um and we start to experience like a higher level of brain function and this can help us transcend because we're actually utilizing more of our brain um, than we otherwise would do and this doesn't necessarily need to be um, an intimate partner so they also stated that a heightened social interaction um, the opioid system in the body so kind of like the reward system in the body reduces the hpa access which actually reduces stress so the summary of that is if you spend time with people that are close to you and that you feel connected with you actually have a lower stress response in your body without having to meditate or drink herbal tea or whatever it is that you do just being around pe people that you're connected with can biologically calm you interesting. yeah very interesting I must have like listened to that part when I was half falling asleep or something. Yeah, nice. <laughs> and actually, I I did have a note to bash social media at this point, so I'm I'm going to carry on with that anyway. Yeah, yeah. Was it the same point as mine, or was it a different one? It's actually a different point. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, well, similar. Um, basically, the idea of mass acceptance versus individual connection and the impact that that had on our brain. So it was a like a quick fix dopamine response to get likes and have that sort of 
uh, validation on a more global perspective as opposed to having those genuine intimate connections because although we're getting uh, a response through social media we're not getting a connection yeah um and that was the the, the big difference that that i thought sort of saw in that um yeah. but i reckon once chapter three aren't we We've just nailed connection as well yeah I, where my head was going was i wonder what social media are going to do over the next like couple of years to try and like are they going to try and make people connect more over social media instead of just being quite like, transactional but this is the idea isn't it we've we've spoken about returning to the baseline before so if you buy a quicker car all of a sudden that becomes your baseline and then you want another quicker car um and then you return to the baseline and it just keeps going and going so social media gives you that that dopamine hit that response and then you return back to the baseline but you can't there's not new social medias coming out sort of on a, a weekly or monthly basis so I almost wonder if we'll we're in this sort of exponential growth use of these these platforms, but at some point, are we just going to think this doesn't do it for me anymore? Are we no longer that kind of chemical response in our yeah, body? Yeah. More of it. Yeah, but it, it does go on in circles, doesn't it? Because like the social media started off with long format being more popular, like YouTube. Then it got shorter and shorter and shorter, which is why you got like Reels, TikTok really short formats, like small like snippets of information. And now you look at the trend in like the growth of podcasts, longer format content again getting more popular because people are craving like more engaging discussions and conversations instead of just short snippets. So it does just go round and round in circles. But I don't know what you can do to make people feel more connected online. Cause you get these random stories of um like people meeting online, developing these relationships and ending up meeting like years and years later. So people obviously do get really connected over social media, but I don't, yeah, I don't know. I'm just rambling a bit there. No, I like it. But I think for me, from a connection point of view, I like the fact that you can talk to people that you're not next to. You, you know, if we didn't have these platforms, we didn't have phones or whatever. If you didn't see the people, you wouldn't be able to communicate with them. So I think that increases connection. But at the same time, we spend a lot of time on our phones not, not actually communicating, don't we? We're not making connections. We're just scrolling. Yeah, just yeah. scrolling through whatever nonsense is on that week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, yeah. We'll move on to the next chapter. So that, that was that was connection. Um Yeah, but actually that little sidetrack leads to sing quite nicely. It was self-esteem was the next chapter. Um, and I quite liked the sort of summation of this. And Maslow cited a, a distinction between what's known as a dominance feeling, where you feel um, confident, capable, strong, sort of intelligent, and you really believe that people should sort of look up to you for your attributes. Um, but there's also dominance behaviour, and this can be quite a almost like a compensation for a, a lack of dominance feeling. Yeah. So where people feel unintelligent or weak or lacking in confidence, they can sort of portray outwardly a very loud, um, lots of dominance behaviours, but actually feel very uh, insecure inside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just to make that clear, that, that dominance feeling is what he later changed to self-esteem. And I, I refer to those two things interchangeably yeah um, um, that, that made me think do you remember i spoke about my podcast and how i that i give a very different perception to how i'm feeling internally and i think that was exactly what he spoke about in that um because i'm not 100 percent confident in my answer but i portray it in a very positive way in an interview setting anyway um and I, that made a lot of sense to me and i think i do that a lot myself in in a work setting yeah and you know there's there's all sorts of little like catchy phrases around it isn't it like in it to win it fake it to make it you know all, all those sorts of um i don't know kind of little coined phrases that outline this very, very real human behavior that we don't want to be perceived as the weak member of a pack and therefore we display behaviors sort of to the exact contrary even though certainly from personal experience i find that that can push people away and you can witness people being pushed away if these dominance behaviors are too forceful or too strong 
Yeah. And then the, the other note I made on this chapter was the the key to cultivating healthy self-esteem um, is to cultivate genuine relationships, skills and competencies so you can have pride in your accomplishments. That, that was the, the pretty much the one thing I wrote down for this chapter, um, which was, and I, I think that's like a really nice takeaway and quite a straightforward thing to go and do. Yeah, for sure. Because um, I sort of thought about self-esteem as quite intangible in the past, and I've had conversations about how do you raise self-esteem. Well, like I think the first thing is like almost what even what even is self-esteem in lots of ways. Um, how do you measure it? But he came up with two ways: um, self-worth and mastery. So, how do you value your own existence? and um the mastery of the context that you kind of live and work in you know are you like not necessarily successful in terms of like finance but are you competent to what you do and are you giving back to that community yeah yeah and he, he wrote down on this well he went for a list of questions you can ask yourself didn't he um do you like yourself I, he phrased it in the um he phrased it as i like myself i am worthwhile I'm secure in my sense of self-worth. I'm highly effective at the things I do. Um, what else did you write down? It was, it was that, that kind of line of question, wasn't it? But, yeah. but things you can ask yourself to get an idea of where your self-esteem is. Yeah, for sure. Um, that was the end of part one, wasn't it? So they were our three parts of, of safety. Um, we had self-esteem, we had connection uh, and safety itself, both emotional and physical. Um, and the idea was that you can kind of build from that. And he used the sort of masts and sails of a ship um, to take us into this kind of transcendent, creative version of our of ourselves. Um, so the part two, and this is something that we've spoken about lots before and we quite like as a topic was um, growth. And there was a quote that came out at the start of this. There's it's the second part of the book. Um, I think of the self-actualizing man as an ordinary man with nothing taken away rather than an ordinary man with something added. So actually, we are all already fully um, capable of self-actualizing and transcending and reaching our full potential sort of physically, uh, emotionally, spiritually, however you would like to categorize that. Um, but we're sort of searching to add something. But actually, we just need to not remove it from ourselves. Yeah. Um, and that, that's kind of um, that's that's a lot of what coaching is. Like you, you help people realize their potential. You don't give them the answers or give them anything that they're missing. You just help them discover the answers for themselves. Yeah, for sure. Um, and it was quite helpful, I think, at this point that he sort of listed some characteristics that they've observed in self-actualizing people over the years. Um, so I got down someone who's truth seeking, who, who values honesty, acceptance, purpose, authenticity, uh, continued freshness of appreciation, peak experiences, humanitarianism, a good moral intuition, a creative spirit and equanimity. Um, and I actually had never come across that term before. And it means to take life's ups and downs with grace and acceptance. Equanimity. Equanimity. So there you go. That's a new word of the day. Um, sort of rolls off the tongue a little bit, equanimity, doesn't it? Um, yeah, I, I think I thought I knew what I meant, and then when you said that definition, I thought it was completely else. <laughs> um, I would have thought so, of like taking things as being like level or equal, or yeah, that's well, equality. Yeah, this is equanimity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, chapter in this was, um, the idea of exploration wasn't it what did you get for that exploration do you know what i wrote down for this this chapter and this wait so i've got rid of my eyesight this is what i wrote down creative self-actualizers are capable of transcending the ordinary dichotomy between the intelligence of the kind and the wisdom of the heart that was that was my favourite quote from. Is that this chapter or the next one? I think it was this chapter. Bloody hell! How did you top that? Yeah. So that that was. I really like that quote. And like the, those qualities that you spoke about underpinning people that 
transcend or reach their full potential or self-actualize whatever terminology you want to use the what what they do is is that effectively yeah i mean it's brilliant and there was another scale that we can help to measure ourselves to see where we are against that quote as well um so in terms of exploration exploration um it was i view challenging situations as an opportunity to grow and learn I'm always looking for experiences that challenge how I think about myself and the world. I seek out situations where it's likely that I'll have to think in depth about something. I enjoy learning about subjects that are unfamiliar to me and I find it fascinating to learn new information. Yeah. Uh, I think that's so brilliant and, and it's absolutely right. When, when we think of someone who's reaching their full potential, they are doing all of these things, not necessarily every single day all the time, but they are present in that individual. But you need that safety in order to feel confident to go off and explore these different environments don't you to to have that kind of grounding to come back to yeah and the, the other phrase that he used which i like to run and start from is he spoke about them being um true cognitive explorers so those questions you went through um they're engaging in work that makes you think deeply all, all of those kind of things um will help you reach your full potential yeah and and this idea as well of experiencing new things is that we actually uh, get more of a dopamine rush from the the sort of prospect or potential of reward than we do from actually getting the reward um mm. if you think about that kind of anticipation of young children on christmas morning the anticipation of opening christmas presents is almost better than than actually opening themselves mm. um so we do get that huge release and there were um five subsections of like the things that you can explore I suppose um, one was social explore social exploration um, sort of wanting to learn from other people and about other people and then there was adventure seeking so a sort of willingness to risk physical social and financial safety to experience something new post-traumatic growth um, that's the, actually really interesting yeah this this actually hit home quite a lot with me um and th there was a really good quote that says um those who cope with violent or life-threatening situations are often viewed in terms of extreme heroism however justified this practice tends to reinforce the misconception that only rare individuals are capable of emotional uh, exceptional emotional strength um but actually it's something that we are very much all capable of and actually we will all go through at some point because as we spoke about the start i don't actually think it's a morbid topic but the inevitability of of death and the end of life there will be trauma that people have to go through and it's not just the exceptional that can can learn and can grow from this yeah um i also like that because um and people talk about post-traumatic stress a lot but you rarely look at the positive of post-traumatic growth so I, I just like how he, he spun that a little bit as well. Yeah, it did put it in a much better light um, and the sort of qualities that people might notice um, is that you might gain a greater appreciation for life, um, put more focus on your close relationships or perhaps like I actually identify a new meaning or a new path for you. Um, you know, um, I think that's that sort of hits the nail on the head really of of the positives that can come from something quite difficult yeah um and then the last the last two were openness um to new experience and then intellect so actually just having a high 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 iq isn't necessarily what intellect is referring to it's also about intellectual curiosity and and the desire to learn more um so you don't need to be you know super brain box in order to to kind of experience this level of intellect you just need to to want to learn yeah um and then you probably didn't get anything for the the last chapter did you or chapter five it was all about love so yeah, yeah. <laughs> i was waiting for you to hit back with some sort of comment after i said you had no friends so there we go <laughs> what all uh, um this this was a really interesting chapter, I thought, because it wasn't about what love 
does to a person necessarily it was about the the position it puts you in um to better give love to other people so we are by nature very caring um a very caring species you know if you think about the way we have sort of evolved and developed if we weren't a caring species we wouldn't have survived because our young you know when we have babies they are completely useless and totally dependent for so long um whereas other species in the animal kingdom like i was doing a teaching a lesson on seals the other day and and they leave their young after sort of 10 days um so i think the idea that if we have experienced love um ourselves experiencing more love towards ourselves doesn't give us a greater sense of transcendence but it gives us an ability to give that love elsewhere whether that's romantic or friendship um we can be caring and that that helps us reach a, a sort of another level of of personality and and transcend really yeah i've i've written do you know what i've written down i've written down compassion fatigue which was part of this chapter that i found really interesting and yeah. i can't you might have to jog my memory a bit because i can't remember exactly what he was talking about but it's where people give so much in relationships that it just burns them out isn't it yeah so it was um to do with uh work as well wasn't it people working in care settings in yeah. particular so doctors nurses um people working in care homes like you can actually uh empathy burnout was the the term i gleaned from this um and there were some ways around that because i th think you go into those professions um you know it's so prevalent on the the news people aren't going to become nhs nurses because the money's great um you know there's a story in the news every day about the poor conditions um so they're going in there for for a higher purpose and this need to give love and to give care but there that does sort of have a tipping point and if you give and give and give and give you can go too far with that um and he had these ways that you can uh, prevent that empathetic burnout and they were anticipation so like planning ahead for things you know when you're working in a, a uh, an environment where people are going to die faster um perhaps an old age care home for example like anticipation so you know it's coming um suppression um like you can intentionally avoid thinking about difficult problems um humor you know um you can remain focused but, but it helps with coping sublimination so the expression of aggression through pleasurable games like sports or challenging workouts uh, and then altruism so giving pleasure from giving to others what you would yourself like to receive which actually i didn't necessarily agree with because it sounds quite like the problem in the first place um yeah, the one that i wouldn't necessarily agree with there is um suppression like that doesn't, doesn't sound like a good coping strategy that one yeah i think it's an effective coping strategy but yeah short term i suppose it's it can be quite useful can't it i mean people do it for years but i personally now am of the the opinion that suppression is not the best way forward um because it's just going to surface at some point um i think sublimination was my favorite there um the idea of using exercise to benefit your mental state um is is kind of what you and i are all about really isn't it um in terms of that topic it's a good one uh, it? sublimination yeah, yeah that and equanimity and we're all over it today aren't we yeah. um but this idea of of having a kind of threshold level of love which allowed us to give um also linked in, into the idea of authenticity um uh, and kind of being true to your values and so many of the topics we discuss come back to to values and being true to yourself don't they um uh, i don't think we can actually ever talk about them too much because they are so important and so valuable um but uh there's there's also this this kind of idea of love and you're not just you're not just loving another person and and trying to change them or want them to become a certain version of themselves because that's what you want um but they describe love as a paradox so being able to love somebody completely for who they are but also helping them grow in their own direction um as, as kind of a, a true sense of love that you would never 
hold anybody back or prevent them from transcending, but you are part of that journey with them. Yeah, obviously you don't know anything about that yet, but. No, no. I obviously wasn't loved as a kid, was I? Jesus. <laughs> um, and then the, the final chapter of, of part two in this book was um, all about purpose. And this is something that you, you quite like as a topic, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I was thinking I didn't actually read the chapter. I thought it was the next part. But yeah, yeah. So again, it's something that I've, um, I guess, thought a lot about over probably probably since lockdown is, is, is where it's been uh, more at the forefront of my mind. And yeah, it's almost, I guess, it's what, like, people's like search for meaning or like their purpose in life or like it's almost like something they can hold on to and give them direction in life yeah um there was a maslow put it in in quite a good way funnily enough he was quite good at what he did um he said that self-actualizing work is simultaneously seeking a fulfillment of the self and also achieving the selflessness which is the ultimate expression of real self. So simultaneously, we're, we're striving to satisfy our own needs in life, whilst equally striving to, to give and to be selfless. Um, and if you can hit that, that genuine sweet spot where you're doing both, then you've kind of achieved purpose, haven't you? Yeah. Um, but also yeah. like, you can have different areas of life where you find purpose, can't you? And I think work's a really easy one to talk about. Um, and they they categorised work three different ways. So do you have a job? Is it something that you do to pay the bills? Um, do you have a career? Uh, is it something that you, you do and you want to do it because you want to progress at it? Or do you have a calling where it's something that you genuinely feel like you were put on this planet to do it and you do it because you love it regardless of any other benefits. Yeah, what were those three categories? Do you have a job that's where you're literally working like nine to five to pay the bills and you couldn't really care less about your about what you're doing? Then career, I think most people probably fall into career, don't they? Yeah, I think a lot of people, I don't think you have to be one or the other though. I think you can have some days it, it was like a job. Um, yeah. You know, people often want, to, oh, certainly in, my experience a lot of people are quite competitive and maybe that slips into career but yeah. certainly I think I've witnessed and have been part of times where it feels like a calling as well yeah a lot of people but I don't know if that comes back to social norms because a lot of people feel like they want to climb the ladder you know get their promotion move on to the next but like, more senior role but probably don't feel like it's their true calling in life but they're, they're just sold this dream of like yeah climbing the ladder getting a decent house, decent wage, bringing up a family, all, all that kind of stuff. I, 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 yeah, I feel like most people would fall into that category instead of feeling like it's a true calling for them. Yeah, for sure. And I guess it's the motivations for climbing that ladder if it's um, so that you can affect an impact change for a positive reason, then I would say that's more calling than career. But if you're doing it for financial reasons uh, or personal gain um it's more job than career um so yeah i think there's a healthy balance between those three but i liked the way it was set out and i think it's a good thing for people to consider if they're thinking about um, a kind of life transition you know changing profession or you know quitting their job just you know doing whatever you know is what you're doing now a job a career or a calling yeah and it's what you're going to, one of those three things as well, because otherwise you might be a little bit disappointed. <laughs> um, but also there is the, um, this phrase of, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing well. Um, but then they, they flipped, Maslow flipped this quote on its head and said, but also if it's not worth doing, it's not worth doing well. Um, you know, don't waste your time on, on things that are actually not important to you not important to anybody else but we feel like we have to do it yeah that, that makes me think of a, a few things like um before our work week he'd always talk about people just filling their nine to five because that's what they're paid to do but the amount of 
time they spend doing valuable work in that day is maybe an hour or two. Um, and then the, the other one is essentialism, like do one or two things really, really well, what's absolutely essential, and then delegate or disregard the rest of the stuff that doesn't really make a difference to anyone. Yeah. Um, and they summarised this chapter and identified sort of three qualities of people who have fulfilled purpose. Um, bravery. So, and I, I quite like this one. Uh, it was a willingness to risk your own self-interest for the sake of your moral values. Um, so again, it comes back to values, values being our most important thing. Um, mm. Sort of being inspiring, you know, are you inspiring to others to take moral action? So that's not to inspire them to, you know, greater financial gain or, or whatever, um, but for sort of moral purposes. Um, and then being humble, you know, um, being realistic about how important you actually are in society. Um, in your little bit of society, I have no doubt that everybody can be, you know, incredibly important. But, you know, are you the person in the country? Like, you know, we get this kind of deluded sense of grandeur sometimes. Um, but I think that idea of being humble and, and being realistic about that is really quite important as well. You mean SNC countries aren't changing the world? Is that what you're saying? No, you absolutely are. Yeah, yeah. I thought so. Yeah, by removing squats. <laughs> but yeah, that, that is a good summary. Like, in the that, that does keep you grounded. Um, but when you think of the number of people that actually change, um, yeah, like have a global impact, it's very, very few. Yeah, but the um, the idea, I mean, if you look at like this is real sort of random example, but like ant colonies where they achieve these phenomenally brilliant um communities and yet each ant only does like a tiny little bit of a job um that's kind of what society is isn't it if we all do our bit brilliantly then society will move forwards um and then the last bit i got for this was about um having adequate support so you can you can be you can have a safety net um you can have connection you can have love you can have purpose but ultimately, at some point, something's going to get difficult. And if you you haven't got um, a proper support network around you, then you are going to struggle to to fully transcend and to transcend uh, not completely, because I think it's for me, it's like a wave that you can kind of dip in and out of. Um, but to, to ride that wave for longer, I think you need the right people around you to help with that. Yeah. And do, do you know what that? When I think about my career change recently, moving from my old job to this one, a couple of things that we've spoken about today, I have so much more here compared to my, like I feel connected to the team around me. I feel like I have more, more a uh, greater sense of purpose um, and a better support network. Yeah, fantastic. And that's what, it, that is literally what it's all about, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, in order to, to take that next step beyond just the sort of basic existence. Yeah, there we go. I'll let you do the summary again because we've covered a lot there and you'll do a better job of it than me. I feel like we have been quite profound today, actually. Um, I think um, what what I think is important to take away from this above anything else is that this idea of transcendence is um, it's sort of some summarises something that rests on a secure platform of security and growth and is a perspective from which we can view our whole being from a higher vantage point with acceptance, wisdom, and a sense of connectedness with the rest of humanity. Uh, and that definition kind of brings all those chapters in into one little sentence, I think. Excellent. Um, do you want to give a quick preview of, could you start reading the next part of the book, haven't you? A, a, a quick insight into what, what the next episode will, will um, cover. Yeah, so, um, we sort of broke down and went further into trans and looked at the idea of becoming uh, and being a whole person. Um, so there are seven principles for becoming a whole person. So we're going to explore um, in a little bit more depth, like what they are. Um, and then another topic of yours, which is a bit of a favourite, this idea of peak experiences. Yeah, um, I do like peak experiences. Do. Um, <laughs> how we respond to peak experiences and how they influence our, our future um, uh, desires. Desires? 
abilities. Um, and then there's there's one theory in here that um, toward the farther reaches of human nature, and and that's what this theory is going to hopefully push. Um, how reach and expand human nature itself. So I actually know nothing about that chapter yet. So I'm excited to read uh, and learn about that and then and then share that on here. Excellent. So yeah, tune in next week where we'll, we'll cover that. Um, and as always, thank you for listening. Yeah, thanks very much. See you next time.